Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Hello, podcast land. Welcome back to Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, we are your friendly neighborhood, semi-neighborhood tour guides from the D.C. area. We are bringing you all things political, historical, spicy, local, national, international, intriguing, uh, all the fun and exciting things. As always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are the, the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. And we are here today. It is November, and November is two things above all else. Veterans Day, which we already talked about, and election season, which we have not yet. Every November, we try to do an episode that deals with both, and so this is going to be the election one. Uh, We love a good political story here at Tour Guide Tell All. We love to break down elections and talk about the who's, the what's, the why's, the how long's, and the what for's. Uh, And so that's what we are going to do today. Uh, But before we get into that, I would also, we always like to mention voting matters. Voting is the most important. Check your voting registration. By the time of this recording comes out, it will be past election day. Uh, But there's always another one next year, in fact. There's always (laughs) another one. And, you know, in many, many places, you get weird little uh, spring elections, primaries. So make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure your friends and neighbors are registered to vote. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there. Be engaged. You don't need us to tell you. Next year will be a big election year. So whatever you do, make sure you're registered. Make sure you know when your your elections are happening on every level. Because uh, voting is important. And you're going to understand why after this podcast. Yes, this, this podcast will uh, illustrate why voting. Uh, Voting's important, but we have a presidential coming up next year, so get ready for that and make sure you're registered. Uh, We also would like to shout out our patrons, the wind beneath our wings, the people who've been supporting the pod since the dawn of the pod, which is coming up on four years ago. Like, that's even a possible thing, really. Time. What is time? Time's a thought circle. So yes, thank you, patrons. You are wonderful and continue to be wonderful. And we make patron episodes every month just for you. So make sure you're listening to them. And if you want to become a patron, that is fantastic too. We welcome you to the fold. We also have November tours and holiday tours. So we are out leading tours, even in the colder weather, to be honest, we like the cold weather a little bit. It's much more, for me anyway, much more exciting than August. 
I will take it over the sweaty, sweaty days of August. And I actually, I really love late November and December in DC. There's still a lot going on. There's a lot to do. The weather's usually pretty amenable. You know, it's like workable, but it's not nearly as crowded as those peak spring and summer seasons. So if you've got a little vacation time, trying to use your vacation time before the end of the year, if you're local, you've got family or friends in town, come take a tour with us. We're doing holiday light tours. We've got Georgetown Glow happening. So there's a lot of special seasonal things this time of year, a lot of fun scandal and ghost tours. So we'd love to see you out this holiday season. I think it's a great time to do a walking tour because you're not going to be sweating yourself to death. It is. And we know all the places for great Christmas lights, great skating. We know where the best hot chocolate is. Like we're, we got the whole place covered. So, you know, we know, we know how to do it around here. So today though, we're going to talk about an election. We're taking it back a little ways. We did a while back. One of my favorite of our pods, frankly, was the election of 1976. And so today we're going to go a hundred years before that. And we're going to talk about the election of 1876. And look, you know, I feel like maybe today, if you talk to a few people and you t- you mentioned the election 1976, some people might remember a little bit. 1876 is not one, unless I think you're a bit of a history nerd that might immediately pop up into your mind. Maybe 1860, when Lincoln gets elected, is something that people kind of maybe touch on. But 1876, despite the fact that it's sort of faded from popular memory, is a really, really pivotal election. It's really important for a number of reasons we're going to get into. And y'all, it's kind of crazy. I think it's always important to mention, I mentioned this on tours a lot, that we think that the modern day election process is very crazy and there's a lot of drama and a lot of chaos. And that may be true and accurate, but it is not unique to the 20th and 21st century. This has been true through our history. So the election of 1876. We've been talking about doing this for a while and like keep putting it off because this one's a crazy one. So today we're finally like diving in here. So context, go. Head first. Context. So 1876, first of all, it's our centennial. America's 100 years old, give or take, uh, how you really want to define that. But it's been 100 years since the Declaration of Independence. So you might say that we're, we're maturing, but we're going through some growing pains. 1876, we are about 10 years out of the Civil War. So for many people alive, voting, running for office in 1876. They lived through that war. They fought in that war. They were on opposing sides of that war. So this is very much still coloring American politics at this time. And this is really sort of approaching the end of what we consider the Reconstruction era. So you still have deep divisions, particularly in the South. You still have quite a bit of debate and disagreement over the role of the federal government in these Southern states and what role they should play. Um, We've passed important amendments, 14th, 15th Amendment. There's this idea of trying to maybe have some equity, but there's also pushback from local and state governments. So there's a lot of the racial tension and these civil rights upheavals. At the same time in 1876, things are not great economically. And let me tell you, I am not an economist. Anytime we start talking about returning to the gold standard, my eyes glaze over because this is a thing I don't understand so well. But here's something I do understand. Inflation, Mm -hmm. which is rampant in 1876. So post-Civil War, the economies of the country has changed and people are finding that everything's getting a lot more expensive very quickly, which nobody likes inflation. There had been in 1873, so three years before all this, an economic depression 
which the causes don't matter much, but the result is everybody's upset. Everybody's got a little less. And economic depressions tend historically not to go well for the party that's already in power. And that has been borne out in the midterm elections in 1874. There was a little bit of a shakeup. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But this is the first presidential, right, since this big economic shakeup. So the incumbent is a man you may have heard of, of whom I am quite fond, Ulysses S. Grant. You're not the only one very fond of him, too. He is still, despite the economic upheaval, quite popular still as we get to 1876. Broadly speaking, there's always people who are going to oppose him, people not in his party. But Grant is is a popular guy. You know, war hero, got the beard, handsome. Yeah, he's, you know, Grant. He is at the end of two terms. So he served two terms, successful terms as president. And in those days, there is no law against him running for a third term. Now, there's a convention, a strong convention. No president has yet done that successfully. So there is a strong convention that presidents retire after two, but there's no legal restraint. And so people assume he's relatively young. He's been pretty successful. He's a big hero. He'll run for a third term. (laughs) However, In December of 1875, so right before the election year begins, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly votes on a bipartisan resolution stating that the two-term tradition, which was begun by George Washington, is meant to prevent a dictatorship. And so basically, this is not a law. It has no legal enforcement mechanism. There's no nothing binding here. But they're what they're doing is sending a strong signal to Grant that, hey, maybe. You're not cooler than Washington, and you should not run for a third term. <laughs> I don't know who you think you are, sir, but you are not right. George Washington. Think long and hard, sir, before you run again, is basically what they're telling him. And so Grant's going to do that, and he's ultimately going to waffle a bit about whether to run for again. Uh, again. So to interject here, the thing about Grant to keep in mind, too, is Grant's a military guy. He does not have a political background. And one of the challenges for him during his two terms has been his relationship with Congress. He has up to this point really relied on vice presidents, which he's had a couple. We've talked about one that dies in office, old, old Senator Vice President Wilson. (laughs) Um, He has had to rely on surrogates to negotiate and work the congressional side. That is not Grant's strong suit. And so this message is something he takes really seriously because he is not sure he can accomplish anything if Congress is basically going to put up a wall if he runs and wins a third term. Grant has had some scandals, some upheaval in his presidency, um, so it, it wouldn't have been smooth to begin with. And then you add this sort of congressional block. Now, if you're the Republican Party, Grant is great. You love him. He's your guy. But Congress saying, look, even across party lines, we don't think this is a good idea. Grant is is going to take this pretty seriously because he does not have the strength or the political capital, really, to sort of battle Congress and battle all the challenges a president in 1876 is going to face. So the incumbent parties in power, their convention is going to be on June 14th in Cincinnati, Ohio. Which is not 
accidental. Ohio is seen going into this election as a major swing state. It has a lot of popular politicians in this era are from Ohio, in Ohio. There's a lot of burgeoning support for the Republican Party and has been sort of this hotbed. So they have their convention in Ohio because it's a swing state and they want it. So they're uh, they're catering and pandering to the Ohio political scene. Yes. Yes, they are. Grant's not running. He's going to try to persuade his secretary of state, a man named Hamilton Fish, to run. Hamilton Fish is great and really an interesting guy. He comes from a really interesting family. He, like, is the start of a political dynasty, literally. He has, like, his great-grandson is in Congress until, like, the 60s for a long, long time. At any rate, he is 67 years old and decides not to run because he considers himself too old to be president. Huh. And we're we're just going to pause there. <laughs> which is kind of amazing. We've talked about William Henry Harrison, which is Harrison's in his 60s when he runs even this almost 30 years earlier, and he's accused of being too old. So I think it's fascinating that even 30 years later, Hamilton Fish kind of goes like, hey, should I really be running for office? I also, and yeah. this is because I've been watching the newest season of Gilded Age, I just have to mention <laughs> Fish is part of a big old New York family, and they all marry old New York families. So his daughter-in-law is Mamie Fish, who is like one of the socialites of the Gilded Age. She is part of the 400. She's tight with Aster. She's got a house in Newport, a big, beautiful home in New York City. So we're sort of going to be like on the dawn of kind of the Gilded Age here. And so uh, that's his daughter-in-law. So I just have to drop that in if you've been watching Gilded Age like me. But yeah, Fish is like, you know, I don't really think I should run I'm 67. That'll put me into my 70s at the end of the term. And so he makes, I think, the very wise decision of I'm not the future of the Republican Party. But Grant doesn't really have anybody else he wants to back. There's no other horse that Grant feels strongly about. So he sends a letter to the Republican convention basically saying you should nominate Fish anyway. But Fish basically is like, sir, I told you once. So Fish writes the convention and says he will not accept a nomination. So going into this, the president, the incumbent, isn't running, and he's not thrown his support behind anybody else. So there's a lot of who's going to emerge from this. The president's not running. There's no obvious next choice, which is never a really great position for the party to be in. They don't have a primary system at this point. So it really like it has to be decided at the convention. There is one man, a man named James Blaine, who seems to be the consensus that the party is uh, moving towards. But he is shy about 100 votes on the first ballot, but he can't consolidate support, particularly from reformers. James Blaine is a, a popular figure. He will come up again and again in Republican Party politics for the next 20 years or so. But he's not a reformer. James Blaine is a is a wealthy guy. He's not especially interested in reform. Uh, And so the wing of the Republican Party that is pushing for reform will not support him. And so he can't quite make it happen. He can't amass enough support to get the nomination. So it's in Ohio. And so somehow out of the ether, the governor of Ohio emerges as the candidate. His name is Rutherford B. Hayes. Rutherford 
Burchard Hayes, Burchard Hayes. It's like the goofiest name. It is Sorry. a great name. It's fantastic. Burchard. Yes. Um, he is the preferred candidate and he squeaks it out on the seventh ballot. So 384 votes to Blaine's 351 votes. So he becomes kind of the guy. It takes a few ballots. And as the vote count sort of illustrates, though, it's not a runaway success at the convention. The Republican Party, as is true of many political parties at most points in their history, is really a coalition of different factions. And this is particularly true as we get about 10 years out of the Civil War. The Republican Party is, you know, made up of former Whigs who still think of themselves as kind of Whigs, you know, sort of the Lincolnists who think of themselves as following Lincoln's footsteps. You have reformers, you have people who really think civil rights and and equitable treatment of all citizens is important, people who want immigration to increase. But you also have members of this party who think, you know, we abolished slavery and that's probably good enough. And we really need to focus on the economic stuff. We need to think about this economic system we're going to have. And so Hayes, as kind of the governor of the swing state and as a guy who I believe he's described in one letter as having the only good qualification as having never offended anybody. That's sort of the thing. He's like the guy that nobody can find a reason to hate sort of emerges, which I find just really interesting. Um, And he's, you know, he's Ohio born and bred, like many politicians. He's a lawyer by trade. He'd been a criminal defense attorney. He was a decorated war hero from the Civil War, injured in battle. Um, He gets elected to Congress. But it's really his time as governor of Ohio that makes him popular. He was two terms. He retired basically from politics, went back to public life. And the people of Ohio wanted him back so badly. He basically came out of retirement and had run for a third term. So he's got a good reputation. He's seen as very honest, very trustworthy, hardworking. He is a reformer, which appeals to important factions of this party. And given that Grant's had some sort of scandal within sort of the civil service side of his administration, someone willing to kind of come in and clean it up is seen as a good thing. So the idea is maybe they could unite behind Hayes. And maybe, just maybe, they can convince Southern Whigs not to fall into the Southern Democratic Party. So they're trying desperately to see if they can get a foothold in the South, which for the Republicans has been a challenge post-Civil War at this moment. Yes. And so Hayes is going to, he's seen as sort of the compromise candidate. His reputation for honesty and hardworking. He's moderate. He's very, very popular. He's done good things in Ohio. And it says something about him that they call him out of retirement, essentially, to like lead Ohio some more. So he's got a good reputation. He's seen as a good compromise, a uniter. And he's going to, well, the vice president is selected for him, a man named William Wheeler. And even Hayes, when told who his running mate will be, Hayes is like, who? (laughs) So William Wheeler is from New York. He's a congressman. And very much for the same reason that Hayes is picked, Wheeler is added to the, the ticket. He was considered a safe candidate, vice presidential nominee. He has not made a lot of enemies. So he is kind of the safe candidate. And so they're going to run together as a ticket on the Republican side. Now, the Democratic side, they are going to hold their convention in June in St. Louis, Missouri. And this Democratic Party at this moment is in a, they're in a rough place. 
Um, it's not been going great, I think, for them. They couldn't even get it together to nominate someone for president four years earlier in 1872. So it's been a it, it's it's been a lot. They've been through some stuff. They had some very <laughs> strong success though in 1874 with the midterm. So, like I mentioned, with the economic depression, the Democrats are going to seize the opportunity and the momentum is in their favor. So they control the House now for the first time in almost two full decades. So they're in command in the House. This is partly because nothing in Washington is done without politics. This is partly why this resolution passes saying, hey, Grant, don't run for a third term in the Democratic controlled House. They're going to be the ones sort of pushing this at Grant because they know they won't win against Grant. Grant's enormously popular. So their convention location is also not accidental. They're going to put it in St. Louis. They want to court their Midwestern and Western voters. And the party platform is essentially that Grant is corrupt. There have been numerous charges of corruption against various people in Grant's cabinet, including we talked about a while ago, cabinet minister Belknap, who was secretary of the army and resigns due to a big corruption scandal. He was seen as very close to Grant. So Grant is seen as having plagued by scandal and they want a candidate that would clean up government and particularly, the other thing they really want is a candidate that will push the federal government out of the southern states. So the southern states are still under occupation post-Civil War, and they want a candidate that will push strongly and publicly to remove this occupation, get the federal government out of our business in the South. And so that is their, that's their two big platforms. Which, you know, is enough to unite them. While they had trouble finding somebody in 1872, they're fairly united on what they're looking to do in 1876. And there's not as much debate or dissent here. At this point, they have a pretty good sense of who they think their candidate should be. Another governor, which I find it interesting that this becomes an election essentially between two governors, which says a lot, I think, about politics mm -hmm. at the time, a governor of New York. Samuel Tilden. So he is kind of like the guy. He basically sweeps the first ballot with 400 votes and he clinches the nomination on the second. There are a few other, you know, hats in the ring, but nobody else is seen as a uniter. And Tilden really appeals to the Democratic Party because he's not a Southerner. He can get votes on the eastern seaboard. They yep. have their convention west of the Mississippi. They're the first major party to have this convention west of the Mississippi. And they think Tilden is very appealing to Midwest and Western voters who may not necessarily feel as strongly about the federal control in the South and might have the more respectable face to what the Democratic Party is hoping to accomplish. Now, Tilden, and we'll get into this in a moment, has some like... I should put maybe like a, some enemies in his own state. He has pushed back as this time in governor against the Tammany Hall political machine. So there is a little bit of convention pushback. Some New Yorkers try to split the convention against him, but it doesn't work. And within two ballots, he is the guy. He is the guy. He comes from a wealthy background. He'd been a protege of Martin Van Buren. Old Blue Whiskey Van. And he is a lawyer, politician. He's opposed to slavery and strongly supported the Civil War. He has earned respect for battling corruption and, again, the Tammany Hall machine. So he has stood up, stood up strong against corruption. And uh, he's seen as trustworthy and incorruptible, which is very exciting. Uh, and you can see the sort of the idea there about why you're running with some going someone like that. The idea there is you're looking for someone to 
get rid of Grant's corruption. Very much the opposite to uh, what's happening there. So that's going to be the the Democratic nominee. That's a little bit about Samuel Tilden. And I think it's really savvy. You know, the Democrats want somebody who's going to be sympathetic to the South, somebody who's certainly going to support removing federal control. But they're also running somebody who has really strong Civil War credentials. Tilden was always opposed to slavery and an abolitionist. He was a war Democrat, which I know sounds sort of like an oxymoron, but isn't right. Like Andrew Johnson and some of the other people we've touched on in the podcast. There were people that felt um that ultimately we had to end slavery and preserve the union. And so they're running a guy with some really good bona fides here. Um, And you could see on paper how this might have seemed like a pretty winning candidate for the Democrats. Yeah, They're not running some firebrand from Louisiana or South Carolina. They're running a very well-respected governor from New York and a guy with a lot of money, a lot of connections. We haven't talked in depth about Martin Van Buren's political savvy on this pod, but the man had it in spades. So if Tilden learned at the knee of Van Buren, this is a guy who understands organizing. He understands field work. He understands canvassing. And so they're putting themselves in a position to have a really strong candidate against a relatively unknown sort of Ohio governor. And we should mention there are like a few other parties at this time. Right. Um, the Greenback Party, which, again, please don't make me talk about the gold standard. But um, essentially, the Greenback Party is a simple platform of reforming economic system. There's the Prohibition Party, which I just want to mention that even in 1876, prohibition has become a big enough issue that they have a political party. We're going to get a little bit, it takes a while, right, for prohibition to become the law of the land. But here they are in 1876, organizing, running a presidential candidate. And the American National Party, which is sort of a fascinating little group. We might have to do a pod on this at some point because they are behind a fascinating mix of ideas where you sort of go like, who does this party appeal to? Yeah, They were they were very odd, the American National Party. The truth is, though, none of these parties are running anybody who's going to be any real threat to Tilden or Hayes. So we've talked about other elections where there have been some spoilers. There's no spoiler here. So we got Hayes. We got Tilden. Just a quick note, I want to jump in, mention that his vice president is a man named Thomas Hendricks, who was governor of Indiana. He will later go on to serve as vice president, although not with Samuel Tilden. Spoilers. Uh, he runs with, yeah, spoiler alert, he runs with Grover Cleveland later on. So he will become vice president, just not at this juncture of his life. But that's, so we've got our tickets. We've had our conventions. We're ready for the general election. we've talked about this elections in the 19th century are different you don't have the candidates traveling around giving speeches everything's sort of done through surrogates a lot of it's very party oriented so your party on the state and local level is out registering people telling them who to vote for what to do both of them are kind of running with this idea of reform tilden's really got the bona fides Mm -hmm. to talk about cleaning up corruption so he's really going to be able to kind of point to that hayes a lot of his is sort of just to remind everybody that he's a civil war vet and hey you know who was on the winning side of the civil war but frankly there is a lot of mudslinging on both sides and this is not not directed at Tilden or Hayes as individuals it's the parties and sort of the campaign apparatus but it's kind of nasty Democrats really don't like being reminded about the civil war they refer to this campaign technique as quote waving the bloody shirt 
And there'll be newspapers that will really sort of criticize the Republicans going back to that well over and over again. But Republicans are, are not wrong, one, and pretty wise to keep bringing it up. One of the popular Republican chants at the time Quote, not every Democrat was a rebel, but every rebel was a Democrat. And this is something they have printed on flyers. This is something they chant at rallies. So the Civil War is very much still part of what's happening at this time. And it's a big part of this campaign. Yes. For Hayes, his biggest asset is his home state, Ohio. That's where he actually focuses a lot of his attention. He will have his close friends and allies basically traveling around Ohio, making sure that everybody remembers their favorite governor and everybody gets out to vote. The get out the vote effort in Ohio is very, very strong for the Republicans, and that will be a very wise move. Now, I would not characterize what the Democrats do as a get out the vote effort. No, no. I would not. Um, The Democrats are going to rely on um, voter suppression and intimidation. This is something, particularly in the South, Tilden tries to distance himself from this and does not support, but the party is actively engaging in it. Uh, And so this, it's kind of very common and it belies the anti-corruption message that he's trying to run on. Uh, And so you've got the Democratic Party sending mixed messages on the national stage. The Republicans are going to outspend and outraise the Democrats by quite a bit. Uh, and Tilden refuses to give any of his own money to the campaign, which is an interesting choice. But yeah, so that's kind of how things go. It's an interesting campaign as they get down to the wire. I think it really, Tilden's refusal to put his own money in, I think actually speaks to sort of the anti-corruption bona fides he has to, is he doesn't want to muddy the waters with his own money. He wants to keep the campaign separate. Uh, He doesn't want to be seen conversely from benefiting from it. So it honestly, I think, speaks to Tilden being a good guy. I want to just mention to what they're doing in the South. And again, this is not directed at Tilden, who again really opposes this, but we are sort of at the birth, as it were, of the Ku Klux Klan. This is something that Grant's been fighting against, sort of identifying groups like the KKK as terrorist organizations. But there had been a boom in 1873, 1874, 1875, of groups that are essentially paramilitary terrorist organizations, groups with names like the Red Shirts and the White League. These are groups that are specifically designed to intimidate and keep freed men from voting. And this is rampant through the South. The Democratic Party will well fund groups like the Red Shirts and the White League specifically to target in states like Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina. And we're not just talking about intimidation. We're talking about outright murder. We're talking about violence. So that that can't be separated from this election. This is the first time the first time we see such a large amount of that effort, this is going to continue for the next several decades. And this is not going to be unique to 1876. But while Grant had been starting to push back on a federal level against the KKK, groups like the KKK and others are really flourishing and they're flexing their muscle with this election. Yes. So the results are things get really sticky and weird. And no clear winner emerges immediately after the election. In the sort of as the dust settles, it appears that Tilden has 184 electoral votes and Hayes has 165. But that leaves 20 
that have not been decided. And you need 185 to win. So Tilden has 184. Hayes needs the entirety of these disputed electoral votes to break his way in order to get the right number. So that's kind of where we are. Some electoral votes, though, are in dispute. Yay. (laughs) One way to put it. Florida with its four. Louisiana with its eight electoral votes. And South Carolina with its seven electoral votes. And I should say this is this election nationwide is to date the highest turnout per amount number of population of any election in American history. The raw numbers, obviously, we have more people today, but by percentage of the voting population, sure. there are more people who can vote, which is not women yet, right? So that's important. But of the people who are eligible to vote, this is the highest percentage of any election we've ever had. So people are coming out for this. In South Carolina, with its seven electoral college votes, 101% of all eligible voters in the state vote. Now, (laughs) I'm not a statistician. (laughs) I'm not great at math. (laughs) Math was not my subject in school. But I want someone to tell me how 101% of people show up to vote. Also, never trust when 100% of anything votes. Like, that's just never going to happen. No. So there's that. There's also reports and documentation of at least 150 Black Republican men murdered trying to vote in South Carolina. That's the worst of the three disputed Southern states, Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina. But the the data and what becomes evident in newspapers in the weeks that follow is that they were literally killing people to keep them from voting. So when you got 101% of all eligible voters, but also a lot of bodies piling up, I have questions. Yeah, something's not right there. About those votes. Yeah. I should mention, too, that with Tilden at 184, Hayes at 165, that pretty much bears out with the polling at the time. Tilden had a lead, uh, not a huge, massive lead, but about five to eight percent in several of the polls at this point. Of course, polling like today is not a perfect science by any means. But you can imagine when the results are kind of announced, a lot of people are going, OK, that's sort of what people were saying. People were saying it probably shake out this way. But you've got these three states. And all three of these states have election return boards, and their job is to look at these votes and these ballots. And so that's what they do. They throw out votes that they see they deem fraudulent. They look at things that seem not right. And all three of these boards, shockingly, find very clear-cut evidence that there has been fraud, violence, and intimidation, which, yes, that is it's just an un, it's an undisputable fact. Yeah. And ultimately, all three states with their election return boards will give their electoral college votes to Hayes. So great. The election boards have said these are Hayes votes. He has won the states. So we'll put a we'll put a pin in that. <laughs> and then and then we get to Oregon. Twist. You didn't think Oregon was going to be the twist right Oregon's the 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 odd man out here so Oregon this is a weird one y'all um I don't know if anything like this has ever happened yeah since so Hayes the Republican wins the state but technically when you're voting in whatever state you vote in you're not voting for the candidate you're voting for an elector who will then vote for the candidate that you have chosen so one of the electors 
in Oregon, a guy named John W. Watts is the he's a Republican elector, but he's also the postmaster. And the Constitution forbids federal office holders from being electors because there's a very clear and obvious conflict of interest here. Watts had planned to resign from his position as the postmaster in order to be a Republican elector. But the governor of Oregon, who was a Democrat, then disqualifies him and certifies a Tilden elector. So basically, Watts did something wrong and then tries to resolve it. And then the governor does something wrong and eliminates Watts and puts a Tilden elector in his place. So that's not ideal either. And in these places with these disputes, and particularly in Oregon, what you end up having is electors reporting different things. So Mm -hmm. the two Republican electors in Oregon basically said, this governor's crazy. We're going to award all three votes to Hayes, but the Democratic elector is going to report that he has one vote for Tilton and two for Hayes. And so you're going to end up with these multiple certifications (laughs) coming from the state, which just goes to show how bonkers this system is. Now imagine you're the president of the United States, you're Grant, mm-hmm. and like there's this election and you know there's been already some violence and intimidation and all this turnout and there's no clear-cut winner and these states are now in dispute and days are going by, weeks are going by while they are figuring out their electors and shots are being fired outside of Hayes' home. One night he sits down to dinner and there's gunshots ringing out outside his home. Grant is disquieted by this, to say the least, and he starts pretty much building up military support in and around Washington, D.C., because he fears what the sort of reaction will be as the Electoral College votes are certified. So Grant is savvy enough to understand that we're not that far removed from the violence of the Civil War and that there is a good chance that people may not accept the results of this election. So um, the Electoral College. (laughs) So yeah, that's where we are. Electoral College meets in their state capitals on December 6th. So about a month after the election, they're going to cast their ballots. And this goes well, except in four places, Vega. (laughs) What four places does it not go well in? Salem, Oregon, (laughs) Columbia, South Carolina, Tallahassee, Florida, and New Orleans, Louisiana. So all these places that had disputes that their election return boards were supposed to work out, it doesn't work out because these states send two sets of conflicting electors. So different electors are meeting and voting. Congress is going to receive basically two conflicting sets of electoral votes from these four places. So the job per the U.S. Constitution Mm -hmm. of the president of the Senate, which is the vice president, is that it's their job to handle and certify the electoral votes. So typically, that's no big deal. Typically, you know, the electors send them in, you look at it, it's legitimate, great. But it's 1876, and you're looking at two different sets of electoral college votes. So in 1876, it's Republican Thomas Ferry, who is going to have to deal with this. It's going to be his job to determine which votes are legitimate. Where do these electoral college votes go? And as you may mention, as we mentioned, the Democrats control the House and they control Congress. And Mm -hmm. they don't really think that's fair. Even though the Constitution says it's the president of the Senate, they don't really 
really think it's fair or right. And um, they think that they need some sort of more equitable compromise. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they do. They come up with a compromise to handle this situation. So what they do, they on January 29th, 1877, so we've now moved into the new year. And in those days, remember, presidents are not sworn in until March 4th. So we are st- we still have a little bit of time. The Electoral Commission Act establishes a commission. And I'm going to break this down. I feel like this is worth breaking down for a minute here. There's going to be 15 people, five senators, which are going to comprise of three Republicans and two Democrats. Five representatives from the House, which are going to be three Democrats and two Republicans. And then, because that's not enough confusion, five Supreme Court justices, two Republicans, two Democrats, and one independent. So in theory, there should be an equal number and one swing vote. But, dun, dun, dun. (laughs) The independent Supreme Court justice refuses to serve on the commission and is replaced by a Republican justice. And so now it is a 15 person commission with eight Republicans and seven Democrats. And trust me when I tell you that number is going to come up very soon again. So this is unprecedented. This has not happened up to this point in our history. If you're Tilden and Hayes, you might not love it, which neither of them seem to privately. Publicly, though, Hayes comes out in support of the commission and he tries to do so quickly because he knows that if they need something that's going to legitimize a winner. Violence is brewing. People are upset. If the commission is seen as something that will be accepted by both parties, he comes out for it. And he's the guy who has the most to lose. So privately, he grumbles. Tilden also grumbles about this, but they decide to do it. And so this election electoral commission is going to meet pretty much through the month of February. They're going to meet with a joint session of Congress 15 times in one month, the shortest month of the year. And they meet 15 times. That's like every other day. How many Literally. joint sessions of Congress do you think we have in a typical year now? Not that many. Like No, a couple. Yeah, a couple, best. yeah. Like a handful. times in one month to debate and discuss the commission's work. Because guess what? Everybody has opinions about these electoral votes, about the certifications. You know, these governors, secretaries of state on the state level, these are all political they're political animals, too. So it's all about party politics. It's all about party alignment. And I have to give credit to the commission in that they managed to stick it through. They take it state by state. They look at the evidence. But ultimately, they have to vote. Yes. And how do they vote, Rebecca? Huh, how do they vote? Uh, ultimately, the commission votes eight to seven along party lines. Stunning. I know you're stunned by that. I know you did not see that coming at all. But yes, they vote to award the 20 electoral votes plus the one from Oregon to Hayes. So all of the outstanding electoral votes go to Rutherford B. Hayes, which would put him over the top and win by one electoral vote. 
And I probably don't need to tell you all this, but the Democrats hate this. They are going to cry foul from the word go that this is political, that this is blatant corruption, the whole thing. They are going to threaten to delay certification with adjournments and filibusters. They actually had hoped to squeeze concessions out of A's, but the Speaker of the House, a guy named Samuel Randall, realizes that this chaos will backfire and rules the filibuster out of order. So the Electoral College, the counts are finalized on March 2nd, 1877, three days before the inauguration. Well, and technically two days before the official inauguration date, but March 4th was a Sunday that year. So they had pushed the inauguration to the 5th. So imagine, though, you're Hayes, Tilden, Ulysses S. Grant, and it's, you know, time's a ticking to get to the end of this inauguration. It is, it is scary. So they get it in under the wire. And there is rampant belief that there has been some sort of deal reached. And the Democrats are hoping to win concessions. The things that interest the Democrats are they want to restore control over their own state governments and thus white supremacy in the South. They want to remove the federal troops. They want federal interference out of their lives, out of their daily life, and sort of let them do what they want to do. And so that is going to be one of the things that immediately happens. The other thing that they really want is federal subsidy for railroad construction, which, okay, fair enough. Now, it is doubtful that Hayes and his supporters reach any sort of deal behind the scenes. The truth of the matter is Hayes did not have, even as president, like a lot of ability to affect what was going on in the South. Anyway, the country had lost its appetite to continue reconstruction. Uh, and there was a lot of just people in the North who were like, you know what, the South wants to do what the South wants to do, let them. And so that's kind of where the mood of the country is. We're done with reconstruction. The war was a decade ago. We need to move move on in our lives. And so that's kind of where this is. Hayes is going to win by one vote. He's going to be declared the winner two days before he's due to be inaugurated. Uh, and we should mention the popular vote, actually. This is one of five elections where the popular vote winner was defeated. There have been a few of those since. Yay. Maybe maybe we've lived through a few. <laughs> Tilden has 4.2 million votes, which is 50.92%. Hayes has 4 million votes, 47.92%. So close. <laughs> so very close. But just when you think we are done, there is a final twist to this entire story. So things you should know. Inauguration at this time is March 4th, but that's a Sunday. They're not going to inaugurate on Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. So they've scheduled the inauguration for March 5th. But when he's inaugurated at the Capitol on March 5th, Rutherford B. Hayes is already president of the United States. That's right. He was inaugurated secretly before March 5th, because Ulysses S. Grant is no dummy. And this has been a very contentious situation. There are Mm -hmm. definitely real threats to the safety of Hayes and the inauguration on that Monday. And so what Grant does is he's watching what's happening in this electoral count. And as soon as this commission votes, as soon as Congress certifies on March 2nd, he arranges a private ceremony in the White House on March 3rd. So Hayes is sworn in essentially in a secret ceremony with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Plenty of um, important political witnesses are there. 
but they swear him in in the red room at the White House. And Grant does this because he's worried about something disrupting the inauguration on March 5th. And I think that says a lot about Grant, about his understanding of what's happening in the country in 1876. And it also says something about just where the nation is heading, I think, at that point with these elections. And, and with kind of the dispute. So I, it's one of those great little twists of history that he was already president when he was inaugurated. It also means we had two presidents at the same time, which is not a thing that we're supposed to do. Like that's- Yeah, that raises some real questions for about 48 hours. Like who's, who's, who's supposed to be in charge? And I can see like the, just a few years earlier this, we talked about this a while back. If there is inauguration on a Sunday, which has happened occasionally in American history, like today, what happens is the president gets sworn in a private ceremony and they do the big public thing on Sunday. But back in the 19th century, this was a whole different thing. We were much more religious. Being sworn in on a Sunday was considered to be not great. And so what had happened was the president pro tem of the Senate had been the one day president. But with the confusion, and you can see from Grant's perspective, this had not been resolved until literally four o'clock in the morning on March 2nd. And we don't want to go less than 48 hours later, a whole 24-hour period without a president, because his term legally ends at noon on March 4th, no matter what happens. So we don't want to go 24 hours without swearing somebody in here. And so what Grant is going to do is say, well... I'm on my way out anyway. Why don't we just swear the guy in just so, so that there's some continuity? What are they going to do? It's 24 hours. We'll what are they going to do? There won't be any big <laughs> crises, hopefully. Uh, and that's kind of en- what ends up happening. You'd never be able to get away with this in our modern media environment, but this is what kind of Grant decides to do. And actually what I love is newspapers are going to break this story on Sunday. It's in almost all the papers on Monday. People know it happened. But, you know, in this era, uh, and particularly in an era like 1876, that if somebody had come along, if there had been Tilden supporters that had swarmed the Capitol or tried to kidnap Hayes, all things that there had been threats to be done, Grant wanted to make sure things were secured. One, two interesting things I'll just mention about Hayes. Hayes from the Republican convention promised to be a one-term president, which I find very interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I find that interesting and sort of the opposition from the other party to him is that Hayes very much said, I want to be a one-term president. I'm here to reform. That's what I'm going to do. So there's all this sort of backlash and worry about what he might do, but he's not running. Mm -hmm. He's not really running this campaign of, I want to be the guy for the next eight years and I'm going to radically change the country. Um, He's like, I just want to fix things up a little bit. He also is the first president to not evoke God or a supreme being in his inaugural address on Monday, which is interesting and adds some fuel to the fire for people who don't already like him. But he does have a really good quote from his inaugural address. And he's is probably not the most quotable president. He's not, you know, a Kennedy or whatever. But I do like this. And I think there's truth to it. He serves his party best who serves his country best. And that's from his inaugural address. He serves his party best who serves his country best. Um, so Hayes really goes into this, I think, with the best intentions of trying to be a moderate uniter, of trying to reform civil service, of trying to get the country on track to continue Grant's work. But unfortunately, I think Hayes's legacy and impact is very much influenced by the South. And that's really, I think, what we remember today. It is the end Mm -hmm. of Reconstruction. Um, As Rebecca mentioned, he has a democratically controlled Congress. 
The Democrats are not going to pay for federal troops to stay in the South. They're not going to pay for programs that are going to support civil rights. So Hayes is butting up against the Congress that isn't interested in supporting much of his platform. And Hayes really does in his own conversations and his diary really bemoan what's happening in the South. But he has he feels he has very little sort of federal power to do anything uh, once he removes sort of those federal troops from southern states. The Democrats see a huge opportunity here. And honestly, like you kind of can't blame them. He's seen as illegitimate and they're going to push on this every chance they get. They call him Rutherford, which kind of seems mean, I know. Uh, And his fraudulency. I know it is clever pun, pun, though. His fraudulency. (laughs) So they're they're not kind to him. And it's a good thing that he, in retrospect, his pledge to only serve one term seems very prescient because basically what the Democrats do is run against him for four years. And it is not an accident that in an era of a lot of Republican presidents, the next one is Grover Cleveland, who we've talked about before. He's going to be a Democrat. So they're going to set this up. Uh, basically to illegitimize him. Uh, Had he run for another term, there's doubts about whether he would have won. But because he doesn't, the Republicans have no standard bearer. They've been kicked around for four years. uh, And it gives Grover Cleveland a pretty wide berth uh, in the uh, next election in 1880. So the, the legacy of 1876 is long in terms of what happens in the South. And also there's a resonance there for like later elections, sort of what happens when the Electoral College and the votes don't quite match up. So there's a lot of going on uh, in the 1876 election. I'll just jump in very quickly, though, and jump in for my boy, James Garfield in 1880. So there is a little gapage. Oh, sorry, James Garfield. There's a little gapage before you get to Cleveland. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to forget my boy Garfield, because if you haven't listened to our pod on Garfield, he's not president for that long. But I think you're absolutely right. It's setting the stage for sort of this lack of legitimacy, this lack of trust in the system. And this is something we'll see time and time again in American elections. But when these things happen, it does shake sort of the confidence in the core of the American voters. Uh, And I think it also speaks to for maybe some of its benefits, the problems of the Electoral College, right? When you're ultimately relying on electors, you're relying on these state boards. So much of this is handled in a way that isn't standardized from state to state. It allows opportunities for confusion and lack of understanding and complications. And that's all I'll say about the Electoral College today. You should have. I'm horrified now that I got that one. I just had to, I had to speak up, I had to speak up for my guy Garfield, but understandably he is not, he's not president for very long. So Garfield, yes. Sorry about that. So basically what I meant to say, they run against Hayes. He probably would not have won had he decided to win. It's a good thing we got Garfield in there, but it's going to lead to democratic rule for a while. Garfield's in the house this time. He becomes minority leader. So yeah. Rescue. Yeah. And and this is going to bolster Democratic control in Congress. While they have trouble, it takes them a little bit longer to get into the White House. They are pretty much solidifying their control in Congress, which has a huge impact on how things play out in this country uh, through the 1880s and 1890s into the 20th century. So that is the election of 1876. Disputed electoral votes, threats of, of an illegitimate election, funky commissions, it makes me think of another year. Ah, what what, what year would that be? <laughs> um, not the most, not as recent as you might think, but hmm. not all that long ago. 
not to date myself. Uh, maybe we'll do. Maybe we'll do the election of 2000 someday. Oh, I don't know. That's going to be a long one. It feels, it feels too soon. So that is our election of 1876. I love, I love election episodes. I love looking at these things. Shout out to Rutherford B. Hayes, who I think was genuinely a good person and just hits at a weird time uh, and is sort of set up to, in many ways, I don't want to say fail, but he's certainly not set up for success in any way in 1876. Although I will mention for uh, all of us who out there, the ladies who appreciate the dudes, go look at a picture of a young Rutherford B. Hayes. He, yeah. Yeah, surprisingly. Surprisingly fierce, I would say, as a young man. <laughs> um, so we want to thank you guys, as always, for coming along with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons. You guys are amazing. We love you. Keep your eyes out for your special patron-only episode. And don't forget, patrons at a certain level have benefits for tickets, for tours. Take advantage of that. Come take a holiday tour with us. If you have ideas or suggestions or feedback, email us to our all at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media. I'll give a little shout out to Wendy, who um, listened to our Women of Arlington National Cemetery tour, really, really loves Maureen O'Hara and was happy that we mentioned her. And she's actually going to seek out her grave site next time she's oh, at Arlington. Yay. So uh, we love hearing from you. Let us know what episodes you like. Let us know what you want to know more about. We will be back. We have one more month before the end of 2023. <laughs> so we'll be back in December with some more episodes and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.